Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 14 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. This is, of course, the 50th episode of the podcast and so, to mark the occasion, we were joined by a panel of esteemed guests, all of whom are really good friends of the podcast. We were joined by Jonathan Fedugba, who regularly appears on the Guardian Football Weekly podcast alongside Max Rushton. We were joined by Joe Donoghue, who is of course the voice of Scouted Football. We were also joined by Owen Brown, who is Head of Content at Pure Football. And we were joined by Alan Feely, who is the editor at Football España. As always, I would direct you to the show notes where you will find a comprehensive running order of the topics we covered with each of our guests. I will, however, give you the usual brief taster. With Owen, for example, we looked at some of the more intriguing managers currently working outside of the leagues we typically cover on the podcast. So, for example, we looked at Ruben Amorim and the style of play he has sought to implement at Sporting Club de Portugal. With Joe, we looked at some young players who 12 months ago he had either not heard of at all or who he knew very little about. We looked at Hugo Ekitike at Reims, we looked at Nico Gonzalez at Barcelona and we looked at Castro Imeri currently playing for Servette in Switzerland. With Jonathan, we looked at the identities of certain clubs in France and in Spain, unpacking, for example, the history of the organic rivalry between Lyon and Saint-Étienne. And with Alan, we spoke to him about his role as a judge contributing to the Guardian's list of the top 100 best male players in the world in 2021. We even managed to briefly discuss my hero, Pierre-Emile Hoybier, and his inclusion at number 100 on that list. We spoke about all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. On that note, I do just want to take a brief moment to say thank you to some people who have been particularly supportive of the podcast. I want to say thanks to the folks at Freelance Football Ops, thanks to the folks at Footy Lingo, thanks to the folks at The Set Pieces, thanks also to the folks at Scouted Football, and thanks in particular to Owen and Gav at Pure Football. They really provided us with the belief and the reassurance that we were doing something right and heading in the right direction. Without wanting to get too sentimental, I would also like to say thank you to my dad who listens religiously to every episode of the podcast and provides really quite detailed feedback. I am convinced that he is the biggest fan of the podcast. And thanks, of course, to all of our listeners, whether you've been with us from the very first episode or whether you've joined at some point along the way. Hopefully 
you're enjoying what we're doing. Hopefully you enjoy this episode and yeah, hopefully you enjoy the next 50 episodes. I'll now let this episode take centre stage. Thank you. Quite astonishingly, we have made it to the 50th episode. And I say quite astonishingly because I was convinced that by now, either one of Rudy Barlow or Michael Jones would have become sick of my chat, would have become sick of my virtual company. But here we are, episode 50, and they're both still just about finding me sufferable enough. So on that note, Michael Jones, how are you doing? Are you well? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. And I think the same goes for you too in regards to me as well. Um, but no, yeah, really good. I'm really happy to be doing this episode tonight. A lot of planning got into it and I'm sure it's going to be lots of fun. Absolutely, Michael. Rudy Barlow, how are you doing? You were actually on time to record this evening, which in itself is a bit of a miracle. Yeah, it's not very lollygo of me, is it? But uh, sometimes you've just got to be on time. And and this is one of those occasions. I made an exception for you this week, Ali, and I think you should be more than honoured by that, frankly. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm honoured by your, your punctuality, um, Barlow, if that's the right phrase for it. Moving on, we have a really quite esteemed panel of guests joining us for uh, today's episode. And yeah, we hope that you like listening to what they've got to say. And yeah, we've already actually, we're recording it in a slightly funny order, sort of a Star Wars-esque approach to the order. And we're going to piece it all together after we finish recording the final part. Um, but it is looking so far so good. So hopefully, Alan, uh, you, can, you can live up to what we've already heard. And I think on that note, I should probably hand over to Rudy Barlow to introduce our first guest. I've just alluded to him there, the Two of you, Rudy Barlow and, and Alan, are going to be heading out to Barcelona in the not-too-distant future. So, yeah, Rudy, why don't you introduce our first guest, Alan? Yeah, well, Alan Feely, as, as worldly as they come, a proud Cork man who's spent time living in the south of Italy, Seville, Lisbon, Brazil. There's probably a few that he hasn't told us about as well. On top of that, he's a fantastic writer, which which always helps. And uh, the life of Alan Feely may sound like that of Riley, but there's plenty of hard work beneath it to make it this all possible. Hard work, which has earned him the role as editor of the website of Football España since he was last on this podcast, amongst many other projects, and a fascinating Medium page, which is less football-orientated, but well worth checking out. Alan, pleasure to have you back on. How is that life treating you? Thanks, Rory. It's good to be back on. Um, I always enjoy listening to your podcast and congratulations on making it to 50. And yeah, looking forward to having a chat with you today and just uh, talk about various topics related to the world of football. I'm guessing there'll be a bent on Spanish football and um, I'm always happy to discuss that. So yeah, happy to be here. Honour that I was chosen to partake in this special episode and um, ready to chat ball, basically. Yeah, I mean, uh, we we love consuming much of the sort of very numerous amounts of content that you that you put out, and we couldn't help but notice that you were involved in the prestigious Guardian 100 project a little while ago, ranking the top 100 footballers in the world. The voting process involves former players like Javier Zanetti, Brazil defender Juan, coaches like Luis Felipe Scolari, and the great and the good of football journalism. It's quite a prestigious list, so just talk us through, if you're at liberty to divulge any of it, what 
the criteria you were given was and what that selection process is like on a personal level. Take us behind the curtain, if you will. It's very difficult to be fair because you get given a list, kind of a, a long list of maybe, I think it's maybe 300 players or something like that. And it's kind of categorized by you the 100 players from last year. And then you've maybe, I think it's like 50 players from Europe, 50 from Asia, 50 from uh, North America, 50 from South America. So it's quite an extensive list, you know. Um, and then basically what you have to do is make a list of 40, your top 40 um, from that list. And it sounds easy, but it's actually quite difficult because um, like how can you define what the top 10 is or the top 50 is? Because, I mean, are you doing it based on the year they had? Are you doing it based on their quality as a footballer? Are you doing it based on the achievements they had over that year? It's, it's quite subjective in that sense. Um, so for me, what I did was basically kind of looked at it from two perspectives, from performance and from achievement. So for me, the player had to be performing at an elite level throughout the entire calendar year, but he also had to achieve things with his club and with his country throughout the calendar year as well. Um, and I think context is massive in this situation because, you know, um, yearly lists are quite difficult given that football is generally run from September to, to May. Um, so it's not really a calendar year sport. Um, so you have to kind of look at it in quite a, a nuanced manner. But um, I did my best anyway. I think everyone else did their best. And given there's so many judges and there's like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them, uh, all from different walks of life, different parts of the world, it does become quite amalgamated and you do get a fair list because there's so many different voices you know and uh, given it was my second year doing it I felt I was a bit more confident in my choices the last year I kind of felt last time that um if I picked a certain player I get like rejected from the list because it was such a ridiculous suggestion you know what I mean whereas this year I felt <laughs> a bit more confident in my uh my judgment so yeah it was an enjoyable experience and it's also a very prestigious list so it's nice to be part of it you know definitely and yeah, it is quite sort of a, a curious thing that we do tend to do these lists based on, and this goes for sort of the Ballon d'Or as well, a calendar year rather than a season. It makes absolutely no sense at all. Um, but you were talking about sort of uh, your selections there and you are saying how you pick 40 players and you were saying that, yeah, okay, sometimes you, you were maybe a little less confident last year. If you're at liberty to reveal it, was there anyone that you picked this year that didn't make it? I'm curious to know if there was any sort of outliers on your part. And if so, why did you kind of select them ahead of sort of others that, that were on the list? Yeah, there was quite a few, to be fair. There was quite a few. Um, I think of a notable one is difficult, but, you know, given that you only have 40 players to choose from, you think that all 40 would get into a list of 100, but, you know, people watch leagues to different degrees and all that kind of thing. Um, I think I selected Dominic Calvert-Lewin, um, who I think was a superb striker over the course of the year. Um, no Everton influence there. <laughs> he didn't make it in, to be fair. But um, I think he genuinely was, because if you look at his numbers last season, he scored 21 goals in the Premier League. Uh, but also the manner of his goals. I mean, obviously you have Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland, but there isn't another striker, in my opinion, with the same physical presence, the same athleticism. Um, the same ability in the air, the same improvement in the final third, because before he was always kind of not really a finisher. But last season under Carlo Ancelotti, he very much became a finisher because incidentally, Ancelotti gave him the same advice that he gave Vinicius this season in terms of not taking two or three touches when you get into the box, 
making a decision quickly and firing on goal quickly before the goalkeeper and the defenders have time to get back and ready themselves, you know. So maybe there's a small bit of Everton bias there, given I am an Evertonian, but that was the one that sticks out of my head because that was the one that made me quite sad that he was uh, he was um, omitted from the list, you know. But uh, but there were several others, yeah. I think, let me think of it off the top of my head. Um, oh, Koke. Koke featured quite high up on my list as well, and he didn't even make it in the top 100. I was surprised by given how uh, pivotal he was to Atletico Madrid's midfield when they won La Liga and also Spain's midfield about Euro 2020 and the Nations League. So if I was making the list um, with full authority, I would have had him in it, you know, but he'd make the cut. So they're probably the two most um, high-profile players I can think of that didn't make the cut. Interesting. It's really interesting what you say about Calvert-Lewin and, and Ancelotti there because I do think we... or the wider football world, world has an image of Ancelotti as kind of a, a guiding presence on a football club who, who's not too hell-bent on improving players. He just wants to sort of get through the season, win a few games, pick up a few trophies. But it's interesting that he's potentially sort of a main factor in both Vinicius and, and Dominic Calvert-Lewin there. M- moving on to sort of the best players, who is your favourite player in the top 100? Do you have someone that, you can sort of wax lyrical about for, for reasons beyond just their quality. Well, yeah, there's a few. And I guess, you know, the three players would be most, um, maybe a handful of players would be most kind of loquacious about, you could say, would be, I mean, the obvious one is Lionel Messi. And then maybe you could also include Sergio Canales, um, although he didn't actually make it into the list because I don't think his year merited it. Um, Pedri and Gavi. Those, I'd say if I was to pick three, I would say Pedro, Gavi, and Lionel Messi. I have a type, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but no, I mean like no, because like for different reasons. Because for Messi, like I've loved Messi since I was ten years old. You know what I mean? Like I'm getting the well, actually 2004, 2005 shirt. I got Ronaldinho on the back, but I'm pretty sure the next season I got Messi on the back. My next one, and like for me, he's the greatest player of all time. I mean, Diego Maradona is probably more talented than he was, but nobody can match Messi's consistency and relentless um, elite performance over the course of his career, you know, 16 seasons at Barcelona. And I think that his performance at Barcelona, I think he scored 30 goals last season and 36 La Liga appearances for a Barcelona team that was coached by Ron Koeman and that we're now seeing is uh, really not the team that we're used to seeing. I mean, they're really quite a few steps behind the rest of the European elite. So I think that he managed to get that um, the number of goals is an unbelievable feat and almost as impressive if you like um, compared to you know the 91 goal season he had in 2012 and other feats he had when he was in his prime um, but for me of course the tipping point was definitely the Copa America uh, you know he scored I think it was four goals and five assists in 360 minutes of football he dominated the tournaments and it was a very difficult tournament because he's been played in Brazil in a Brazil ravaged by coronavirus, ravaged by right-wing politics, ravaged by controversy, um, you know, against a very strong Brazilian team. He played in that final in Rio de Janeiro, in the Maracanã, the very stadium that he lost the 2014 World Cup final to, to, um, to Germany. So there was just so many elements there, you know. So I think over the course of the year, for me, he was the most deserving player of the number one spot, even though Lewandowski was superb for Bayern Munich, of course. I just think that if you look at what I said earlier, performance and achievement nobody can match Messi because he did both he performed at a really high level in a pretty average team and he also 
achieve something that Argentina haven't done since 1993, which is win a major tournament. Um, so I just find that very impressive, to be honest. And then for Pedri and Gavi, you can argue they're quite similar players in many ways. Um, I guess for Pedri, it was just, I remember being at La Cartuja during the summer. I think it was the first game. I think it was Spain-Sweden, wasn't it the first one? Do you remember? Yep, definitely, yeah. Spain-Sweden, yeah. And I remember just watching... First of all, it was the first time being in a stadium for a long time, so I was completely hyped to get in there. And it was a lovely sunny evening in, uh, in, in Seville, very, very hot. It was like 30, 32, 33 degrees. And I was there and uh, watching the players come out onto the pitch and we're seeing Luis Enrique come down and touch the grass and then kiss his hand. And then all the other players came out after him. And I was just thinking like, what the, f-? like it must be mental for Pedri, who's only 18 years old uh, at that time, to be playing in this scenario. And then when the match started, he's like, not only is he not out of place, he's the most comfortable player on the pitch. He's dictating a match in the most elite situation he could possibly be in with complete poise. And I was watching it, and I'm 26 years old, and I was watching him, and I was like, I, I, I can't believe what you're doing right now when you're only 18 years old. Like, it's just mind-boggling. And then I guess Gavi is similar, but Gavi is special because he's from Andalusia. He's from Las Palacios y Villafrancas, which is the same area where... Um, Jesus Navas is from, amongst other famous footballers. Um, he's from the city of Sevilla. He's from Betis. And I love seeing him do well. And similarly to Pedri, maybe it's not quite the same degree. He also performed at the level this year that's remarkable for his age, you know, playing in the semi-final of the Nations League against Italy in October, you know, crunching in the challenges with Marco Verratti, performing at a very high level for a quite average Barcelona team. Um, I think he just snuck into my top 40 because, to be fair, he only appeared in the last uh, few months of the, uh, the calendar year. But I think that, you know, the three of them are probably my favourite players to, uh, to to think about, to talk about and to write about just because of how unique they are. Like, I don't think there's any player comparable to any of those three for different reasons, of course, in the rest of European football. It was... Of course, Sergio Canales, who who got the winner in the recent Betis Sevilla derby, very controversial one. I mean, it, we, we've spoken about it and the PVC plastic that was thrown at Juan Jordan, match abandons, started again the next day, and Canales was the one that got the winner. I, I just want to sort of dig your or, or sort of pick your brain on that one, just because I think, I mean, I've spoken about it before. But I think it's really hard for people who maybe aren't as familiar with Spanish football to get a real grasp of El Gran Derby between Betis and Sevilla because, for me, it takes the place of the most anticipated derby in Spain. It's the it's the most fiery, as was kind of demonstrated. But you were there for 41 minutes, so probably in terms of sort of the momentum that both teams took into it and in terms of the the way that both teams were set up, probably one of the biggest derbies in years and it obviously spilled over, but what was it like being in El Benito Villa Marín for that atmosphere? It was crazy, but it was something that was building all week really because, I mean, like in Sevilla, there's nobody who isn't either Betis or Sevista. It just doesn't happen. Like if you get your hair cut by a hairdresser and she has no interest in football, she will still tell you that she loves Betis and she hates Sevilla with a passion. If you get a ca- coffee and you ask the barista, are you Sevilla, are you Betis? I tell you, you know what I mean? And, and some of them are hardcore season ticket holders. I remember I was at Sevilla Getafe the other day, um, or two weeks ago or so. I was waiting outside the ground to get in with my, uh, my laptop and stuff. And, 
and some some fellas comes up to me and says, "Pat in the back." He goes, "I go," and I was like, "I realize, oh Jesus, you're the fella who served me a beer uh, last night in uh, in in a bar in Seville." Do you know what I mean? Like, is this? It's funny how these people like they're all connected to the clubs. You know, there's no nobody who's apathetic about football in the city, and even more so about Sevilla and Betis. If you play five aside football in Sevilla, you will not see a single Real Madrid or Barcelona T-shirt or shirt. You'll see only Sevilla and Betis shirts. I remember wearing a Barcelona shirt once going for a walk after playing football. And um, I was walking past Sevista Peña in Feria, Cali Feria in Sevilla. And some drunk guy just jumps out and was going, what are you wearing that shirt for? Like, you're in Sevilla, you're not in Barcelona. <laughs> Get that shirt off you. And the rest of them were carrying him down and stuff. Like, and he was like this drunk old man, but he was kind of just, I actually kind of enjoyed it. I was like, fair play, like fair play, you know. You should, it should be a hostile thing to wear an enemy shirt in enemy, enemy territory. Um, but that's the context that Derby happened in. And, you know, so when the game actually began, it was remarkable because also the last time the two teams played, Sevilla won 2 0 at the Kino Villa Marine and won at a cancer, really. It was a very easy performance for them, very easy game. And after the game, all the Sevillistas plus Manchi celebrated quite vociferously in the direction of the traveling Sevillistas. And the Bedicos did not like that one bit, they didn't like it at all. They really didn't. And they were disappointed with their team because, you know, normally in recent history, at least, they'd be coming into the derby in the back foot. And while that was the case then as well, they're significantly closer to Sevilla now than they previously had been. So I think for this derby, it was highly anticipated because both sides are neck and neck in La Liga. Sevilla are six points clear of Betis in second place, Betis from third place. So they're at the highest level combined that they have been in quite some time quite some time so the anticipation was high basically and so when the game kicked off and we're being outside the ground beforehand the buzz was unbelievable um all the bars are absolutely packed uh, across the city across the city but especially by heliopolis that been in a marine area going into the stadium my first time in there climbing up the steps it's like this old school latin american stadium it's very seductive it's all concrete and steel and um, there's no frills whatsoever it's a really high and imposing stadium. Like it's very steep. You feel like you're looking down the pitch. You feel like you're all at one with everything. I was in the stand and I remember uh, I felt self-conscious during the hymn because I was the only person not raising a flag. Do you know what I mean? Like I felt like I was a narc or something. Do you know what I mean? And I, in like a high school in, the, in those crime shows. What is it? 21 Jump Street or something. What? Is that what it's called? No? 21 Jump Street. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I felt like that. I felt like I was an imposter. Like I was like, Jesus, like, like weird, but like, the atmosphere was unbelievable. Like, honestly, I've never heard an atmosphere that in my entire life. They played like this light show pre-kickoff and it was crazy. And then they did the hymn and the voice, the sound. It was unbelievable. 55,000 people that were just so, so loud. And then the interplay with it, there was 250 Savisas there in the top right corner of the stand out of 8,000 to actually apply for tickets. So it was really, really a hardcore bunch of Savisas. And there was constant interplay between the Savisas and the Bedicos, you know. So it was very entertaining to be fair to be, to be flying the wall and observe it. And then when the game began, it was a really good game. I mean, like, I think Betis were definitely the better team from the jump. But knowing Sevilla, like I do, like Sevilla are a team that can grain at results. So there's every chance that they could have fought the way back into that game. And then, of course, when the game came to a halt in the way it did with that PVC pipe thrown to the pitch, hitting Joan Jordan in the head, it was so anticlimactic because... You know, everyone had this pent-up energy. We were all hoping for extra time penalties, especially for a neutral like me. 
I was really looking forward to seeing the spectacle, see how it unfolded without worrying too much who won and who lost. I was just completely enjoying the moment. So it was anticlimactic to leave the stadium. I remember I met with Sam uh, Leverage and Panos uh, Kostopoulos after the game, two other journalists, and we walked back to the city centre and had a beer, gone to the bar for like 1am and we were like stone cold sober. It was just such an anticlimax because the city had been buzzing pre-kickoff and then post-game it was just dead like, it was a unique experience, but I would have rather have seen the game out to its conclusion, if that makes sense. Absolutely, Alan. That sounds fascinating to hear it from someone who, of course, watched it all unfold firsthand. is is very enlightening, to put it one way. And just one last point, taking it back to the Guardians' top 100. I was delighted to see Pierre-Emile Hoybier coming in at number 100 on that. Um, if anybody followed Pure Football's coverage of the Euros over the summer, you'll be well aware that I was Pierre-Emile Hoybier's biggest fan over the course of the Euros. He was an integral part of that really affable Danish side. And so regardless of whether or not you included him in your 40 or not, Alan, don't tell me if he did or if he didn't, because I don't want you to go down to my estimations, Alan. But um, yeah, I was delighted. I did, I did, I did. Ah, there we go. You've gone, I didn't think you could go up any higher in my estimations and you've just, you've just gone up even higher. So it's because, because everything we're going to sign him in the summer before we Ah. Spurs. So when we saw him doing so well at Spurs, it was like it's like seeing like I don't know like yeah. an ex-girlfriend or something doing well. It was hard <laughs> to take, you know? oh, fantastic, Alan! <laughs> Thank you so much for giving us your time, for giving us your insight. It's been brilliant to hear from you. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Perfect. Well, we are going to take a quick break before moving on to the next part of the episode. We'll see you soon. Yeah, so our next guest is one of the brightest minds on Scottish football, a newly signed up member of the Parents Club. On behalf of all of us here, I think it's fair to say it's not just his newborn who Owen Brown will be imparting his wisdom on for years to come. As well as being the head of content at Pure Football, something that I just can't justify the pronunciation of with my northern accent, um, it is an excellent online multimedia platform which forensically analyzes several aspects and areas of the beautiful game. Owen has contributed to various outlets. Aside from that, with his vast football and knowledge, Owen, it's great to have you back on the podcast. How are things going? Hi, Michael. Um, it's a very generous introduction, which I hope I can in some way live up to over the next 20 minutes or so. I'm, I'm very well, uh, thanks. I'm happy to be here on your landmark episode and very much looking forward to the next 50 episodes of The Road to Nowhere. And of course, I hope you and everybody else in the show is doing well too. You mentioned before joining us this evening that you were keen to look at some of the most intriguing managers outside of the leagues we normally cover. On that note, which coach who meets that criteria would you say you're particularly impressed by? Uh, well, I'm glad you used the word intriguing. Um, the person I want to talk about is Matthias Yeisel. Uh, he's the 33-year-old head coach at Red Bull Salzburg. And, and he's impressed me, Michael, um, hugely in terms of results in a short time so far in that position. Um, and to me, he's intriguing because um, his situation can maybe make you think about wider, bigger questions in terms of things like how do you evaluate football managers, particularly, I guess, in terms of whether they're successful transfer over to different clubs and different leagues. And that's all kind of, of course, against the backdrop of Jesse March's failure at RB Leipzig after moving there from Red Bull Salzburg. So Jaisel's the guy that I'm, I'm keen to talk about tonight. Yeah, absolutely. So would you just be able to tell us a little bit about sort of what makes him maybe stand out from some of the recent graduates from the Salzburg 
Red Bull Salzburg sort of coaching long line of managers who have you know gone on to have managerial careers of varying success and why Jaisal is someone you're particularly excited by yeah absolutely um, and I think with you know what you alluded to there the degrees of success again that's one of the kind of interesting things about this right there's um there's so many unknowable things from the outside about why a manager achieves something and why another manager might fail and, and what's down to systemic structures, what's luck, what's down to their own football coaching ability, what's down to their leadership style. And I think just um, football is at its most interesting for me when you can maybe see specific individual things, you know, whether that's a type of goal or a trend among fans or a tactical idea or a manager's results, and then get to think about the, the kind of bigger questions that, that relate to that. So, yeah, in, in terms of um, Matthias Scheisel, um, he took over the main job at Salzburg in the summer of 2021. Um, and in terms of him uh, differing um, from his predecessors, well, the first thing you'd have to kind of say is that his biography is extremely familiar um, for kind of well-regarded modern managers. So this is a guy who was born in the south of Germany, um, which is, you know, where Tuchel's born, Klopp's born, Nagelsmann's born, you know, whether it's Bavaria or a little bit more to the west, they're all kind of, you know, south of Germany. Um, many of them had uh, pro football careers that have been curtailed early um, due to injury, you know, maybe in their mid-20s or whatever. Um, so again, another kind of similarity. And again, he's been a assistant manager or youth level manager at kind of good places, interesting places. So he went to Bromby as an assistant manager. And then, of course, he went into the Red Bull uh, system and and you know was a under eighteen coach there and then uh, managed the the feeder club Leafering, so a kind of like familiar um, backstory I guess to our our protagonist, um, and, and he's he's again to go back to kind of the the first thing I, I mentioned, results have been really impressive for him from the outset. So he took FC Leafering to second in the second tier of Austrian football, um, only on goal difference. So they finished on six. Three points, which was the same as the table toppers, um, but with just a, a one goal poorer uh, goal difference, which is, you know, Leafering obviously benefit from phenomenal um, player pipeline that Red Bull have, but it's still a massive achievement to take a team that's generally that young and probably transitional, you know, and they're not together for a long period of time. They don't maybe have that cohesion. So to me, that kind of shows some coaching ability, you would think, to be able to deliver that. Um, and, and this season, He's obviously started um, managing Red Bull Salzburg. Um, again, you know, a, a relatively favourable position for a manager to come into. Look, I mean, they've won the Austrian League eight times in a row. Um, so, you know, that kind of goes back to our kind of questions at the start about how do you assess this. It is, you know, a, a good club to manage, right? You know, you're in a pretty reasonable position as a, a novice coach. Um, but he won his first 10 league matches in a row. He's the first coach in the history of the Austrian Bundesliga to do that. So that's that's obviously impressive right off the mark. Um, and after 18 matches, um, they've lost just once in the Austrian Bundesliga. They're 14 points clear at the top of the table after half the season, which is really impressive. And then it's in the Champions League that he's maybe really stood out um, compared to predecessors. So they won all three of their home games, beating Leo, Wolfsburg and Sevilla. They drew away at Sevilla. They finished second and they'll face Bayern Munich in the round of 16. So that makes them the first, I believe, Austrian club since Sturm Graz um, in 2000 to 2001 that's progressed past Christmas in the Champions League. So that's, that's obviously a, a standout achievement again for him. Um, and then... Um, so he's had a very successful start to management in terms of results and, and we're approaching a 
an interesting period for him and Salzburg as they come out of the winter break in the Bundesliga. Um, on the 4th of February, they've got a cup quarterfinal. On the 11th of February, they're away to Rapid Vienna in the first match of the second half of the league season. And then the 16th of February, they host Bayern Munich in the first leg of the Champions League round of 16. So it's a good time to look at Dreisel, I think, and assess um, his capabilities. Um, and I guess, shall we, we move on to that? I have a little bit of some thoughts about his playing style and maybe how he maybe differs um, or exactly what he's trying to achieve on a pitch, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. And also with Jaisal, what's interesting, you mentioned Jesse Marsh earlier, and one of the things, you know, one an example he, that may be used against his appointment at RB Leipzig was maybe that it was a move too soon for him. So just going on from his playstyle, where do you think that playstyle would really fit at maybe a club in the European leagues that we cover or maybe the Premier League? Sure, yeah, absolutely, Michael. Um, looking at the kind of playing style, first of all, I guess it would probably be fair to assume that most people at this point kind of have a, an understanding of how teams in a Red Bull network generally approach the game of football. Um, and un under Jaiso, when I've watched um, Red Bull Salzburg, they've tended to set up in a formation that you would maybe call a 4-3-1-2 or a 4-4-2 diamond. So not, not too dissimilar to what we've seen before in kind of basic formation. Um, the, the way that I kind of tend to do it myself if I'm watching a team over a period of matches and try to summarise their playing style is I try and come up with three words that I think describe what they're trying to do in attack and maybe the same for defence. So for Red Bull Salzburg in attack, the way I would describe them is quick, low, together. Those are the three words I would use. And this is because they press high and well, um, often in a kind of small network of maybe three to five players in the same zone. They try and win turnovers. They've got players who are generally all very mobile um, and they cover ground quickly. Um, but with Jaisal, it feels to me like they're extremely hardworking, extremely quick in their movements. Um, and that's the kind of number one thing. The second thing is um, when they get the ball, they want to move it towards the goal with low passes. Um, this isn't a team that would ever really play um, high kind of floated switches to the other flank or look to reset possession at the back. Um, they, they are a team that move and they try and pick the most likely to be successful pass. You know, they very much play on the percentage, but, you know, high risk percentage. Um, but they're always looking for the pass towards goal and they always try and keep it low to reduce, I guess, there's maybe technical errors are more likely if you're playing a higher pass it's tougher to control obviously it takes more time to travel so that that would be why low and and finally together um is for me not about the press but about the numbers they get forward so they they absolutely flood the box um if they win the ball back um obviously these are athletic hard-working guys um but they want to have passing options for each other in order to set up the best possible shot and, and the key kind of thing, if you then distill those three words for me, is efficiency. That's what it's all about under Jai. So you're trying to make um, the quickest, best chance to score and, and be extremely efficient with the um, possession that you have. And in, in terms of the defensive side of things, um, they've done spectacular in terms of results. It's obviously helped by the athleticism, the pressing and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they have only conceded 12 goals in 18 league matches, which is a better record than the past few seasons. Marsh has had some criticism for his time in the Bundesliga for the defensive setup. It's hard for me to tell, really. I mean, obviously, they're facing a higher quality of player. It's newer players to him. Um, 
does Jaisal really have that nail better or not? But the, the numbers suggest in some ways he does for Bundesliga. The, the other kind of key thing that he does um, with his defensive strategy that Red Bull Salzburg would have done to an extent previously, but I think we're seeing it more, is the centre-backs are so aggressive. So they play a very high line, which you would expect. But if, for example, you manage to get through one of the, the pressing moments and punch a pass into midfield for maybe your centre-forward to drop off and receive it um, to feet, the centre-back is going to try and go past him or through him and take the ball off him, even into the opposition half. They're extremely aggressive in that way. And also, if you manage to actually get into their half and you're dribbling or carrying the ball, the number one thing, obviously, all team want to stop shots, but Red Bull Salzburg are extremely focused on stopping you getting shots off in the box to the extent that they just won't let you get there. So whether that's a foul or a tackle or conceding a corner, they don't care. They'll happily accept anything of that nature as long as they can stop you getting a shot in the box. So th those are the key things I'm seeing from Jaiso play-wise that I think are maybe a little bit... Um, more of an extension from what Marsh did and, and maybe more of a growth in terms of the Red Bull style. And in terms of a destination quickly, um, I think that it's a really extremely interesting question for us to, to consider, Michael. I think that obviously the decision makers in the Bundesliga are going to be looking at what happened with Marsh and, and you know, generally thinking, well, how do you assess this, you know, and so on. Who knows, really, right? You've got to kind of do the same that we're doing, watch the matches and, and you know, interview the guy and, and so on. But they're, they're maybe going to be a little bit more cautious. The counterbalance to that is I think there are quite a lot of jobs available potentially soon in the Bundesliga. So there's, um, well, Jaisel grew up in Stuttgart. He played youth football for Stuttgart. Um, he also played for Hoffenheim. So those are two kind of natural links in a way. And obviously Stuttgart and a little bit of trouble at the moment, second bottom. I do like Matarazzo, but there's a possibility there. There's other clubs like there's Wolfsburg who are in 15th. There's Borussia Mönchengladbach who maybe, you know, might look elsewhere. There's even, you know, like Kerta Berlin, something like that. And then Hoffenheim, obviously, Oynes is, is contracted for a little while. But let's say, you know, Jaisel wanted another a full season again at Red Bull Salzburg. That's a possibility for 2023. So those are um, some possibilities in Germany. I think it would be quite interesting maybe if he did consider England. Um, I think maybe somewhere like, let's say, most EPL teams are probably pretty cautious compared to Bundesliga. There's the, you know, not the language link and so on, natural kind of pathway. But if Potter moved on from Brighton or Hasenhutl left Southampton, those seem like clubs that might be a fit for me potentially. So, yeah, that, that's my thoughts on Jai. So he's extremely interesting. I think that we should all try and maybe watch the uh, Bayern Munich um, game in particular um, to get a, a real feel for what he's doing there. Yeah, I think he'll certainly be really entertaining. And even if they do come in as heavy underdogs, it'd be great to see them try that approach against the likes of Lewandowski, you know, sort of around the halfway line and see exactly how it all works but it'll be fascinating nevertheless um so we're talking about Europe there I mean outside of Europe a man who enjoyed a rather stellar 2021 was Pizzo Motsimane the South African coach guided Egyptian side Alali to their second Champions League in Africa in just eight months now the New York Times's Rory Smith said Motsimane was one of the best managers last year as a fan of his also Owen why would you echo Rory's views uh, well, I think that Smith was 
rightly um, questioning FIFA's decision to leave Mossman off the shortlist for Men's Coach of the Year 2021. Um, it's kind of ironic that we're discussing this in the day that Gianni Infantino has made the, the front page of Twitter, at least for some things he said, um, that maybe have been a little bit misinterpreted, but are still about the, the kind of need for more inclusivity of Africa and opportunity for people who live outside Europe. And, and these shortlists, right, and ultimately the wars themselves, they're dominated by Europeans and people working in European football. And I, I think that Africans and people working in African football can rightly feel unfairly overlooked at times. And, and as you say, Mossman won the African Champions League as Al-Akhlai manager twice in the space of eight months. And he was, in fact, the first non-Egyptian African to become manager of that club. So it's, it's quite a big achievement for him personally. Um, and I think Mossman, from reading you know, interviews with him and so on, and, and the Rory Smith piece that you, you mentioned, he clearly believes that given the opportunity, um, both in terms of actually just a job but the you know the, the kind of learning the, the qualifications and so on that a European coach might have he believes that given the opportunity he could be similarly successful at a big European club but he thinks that it's unlikely to happen that clubs overlook black African managers and, and he's more likely to go back into the international management again I, I think that's all kind of true um, but the thing I would maybe poke at with Rory Smith's article and his view on Mossman is that he doesn't really state any reason why Mossman should be considered one of the best managers beyond the fact he's won those two trophies um, and I think that it's a bit more complex than that um, it's a difficult question right and and should really only exist in silly lists that FIFA drop who's the best manager because ultimately it's kind of complex there's a lot of ways you can approach that right you could end up with uh, answers from Julian Nagelsmann to Dick Campbell you know depending on what uh, kind of things you're considering um, the problem is I don't think these FIFA lists look at it with very much thought about the complexity and the difficulty is that the people who are compiling the shortlist are probably, even if they were, were going to consider things beyond just trophies that you've won, they probably don't watch much of Al-Akhlai, if any, and they certainly you know will watch a lot more European football. So it's, it's not fair to people like Mossman. Um, I, I guess what I would say in terms of trying to assess how good Mossman is is that you need to watch his teams play um, so I've done a wee bit of that um, and they are pretty good um, I mean this is with the caveat that you know the African Champions League it's not as high a standard as like the European Champions League it's not as difficult a pathway for them and, and they're quite a prestigious club right I mean they're a club that have won in their view um, the most trophies ever in, in football in the world so you know they're maybe not it's fine for him to say he's the best but you know it's maybe not the most challenging circumstances but anyway they, they do play some really good stuff um, so Mossman is um, he's a big fan of Pep Guardiola based on interviews and so on that I've seen with him. And I think you can see a bit of that in the playing style. Um, they play a kind of 4-2-3-1. They're very patient. They pass it across the back line. The centre-backs, so they have an Egyptian um, and a Moroccan. They look for straight passes low um, into the kind of half spaces for the attacking midfielders. Um, and the centre-forward, um, Mohamed Sharif, has good movement in the box and is kind of alive. Um, they do quite a aggressive press. It's very ball orientated, so it's very much like three, four players go towards the ball. So they're quite susceptible to getting cut through. You know, I can imagine if he did that exact same style in a European Champions League match, um, it 
might fall apart somewhat. Um, but anyway, there, there's really good elements of um, football. And, and the, again, there's an opportunity to watch some of them soon um, if people want to. So they play in the FIFA Club World Cup in February, um, which I think should be televised. So that's a, a good chance for people to see them. And Mossman's contract is up at the end of the season. Um, he currently has them top of the Egyptian Premier League undefeated. There are some, um, I don't know, uh, fractious things going on around his contract negotiations, it seems. Um, so that's maybe one to watch. Um, I, I don't know. He'd probably love to be part of the City football group. So if, you know, there's a, a spot for them at one of their uh, smaller European clubs, that might be something for them to consider. Or, or why not get him into the Red Bull network if he's wanting a European move? It makes sense to me in a way. I think it's interesting you said opportunity quite a bit at the beginning there. And I was wondering whether, you know, the international route may be the way to get him spotted even more. But obviously the timing with the sort of World Cup qualifying cycle coming to an end for this one, it, that could be a while away. So hopefully it won't be too long. Coming back to Europe, on a final note, the last time we spoke about Ruben Amorim on the podcast, it was a while ago, he had just taken the reins at Sport in Lisbon. Since then... He's led the Lions to a historic title win and the Champions League knockout stages. Just how high is Amorim's stock right now, Owen? Yeah, it's, um, it's still pretty high, I reckon, although it is quite timely that we're having this discussion um, because there, there have been some things happening. So um, they lost their second league match of the season recently. Um, so this was a 2-1 loss to Amorim's uh, former club, Braga, on the 22nd of January, and they'd only lost their first league match of the season on the 7th of January. So they're still up in second, but Porto are undefeated and six points ahead. And to kind of compound that, um, they are facing some financial issues. So not not unfamiliar ground for Sporting Lisbon, let alone some other clubs in Portugal. But UEFA have today said that unless they um, pay up some money that they owe by the end of January, they're going to be banned from European competition for the next three seasons, which probably just a threat, you know, probably just, you know, um, trying to provoke um, some action, but it's it's got to be a bit of a stress for the manager, particularly given that they're actually in, um, you know, European competition past Christmas for the um, uh, first time in a long time. Um, and as a result of those financial issues, there's some rumours today about potential player sales during um, this window. Um, and, and in terms of what's kind of to come, so they, they play in the they actually play tonight, shortly after we finish recording, in the um, Taka de Liga semi-final against Santa Clara, who were the team they lost to on the 7th of January. Um, and then they've got Porto away on the 11th of February, and then they host Manchester City <clears throat> excuse me, in the Champions League round of 16 um, in the middle of February. Um, and yeah, it's only their second time, I think, in the club's history to reach that point of the Champions League competition. So it, it's, it's a big moment for Amorin and perceptions of him you know is there the, the the resilience to bounce back from those results can he show his tactical credentials against Guardiola um how does he cope if they lose a key player so I think that that's kind of an interesting time in terms of the stock and I think if we 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 maybe go back a wee bit and look at kind of what's happened um so he's He's had a very good time in his near two-year period kind of managing the club. You know, as you mentioned, Michael, the, the league win was the first for the club in 19 years. And of course, you know, getting to the, the knockout stages of the Champions League. And I, I think the important thing to consider for him is quite how transformative this was for the club. 
Um, so they'd, they'd had a disastrous time of it. I think they were outside um, the top three um, in the league for the first time in the 21st century, the season before he took over. Um, and he's done great things for them, um, I think, in terms of the recruitment and the development of players. Um, so he's had people like um, uh, Pedro Gonçalves, um, who he has started playing higher up the field than he'd played previously in his career. And it's really paid off. He was the top scorer in the in Portuguese league last season. He did overperform his expected goals by a massive level. I think it was something like he scored 23 goals, but his XG was like 11.5. So, you know, um, but still very impressive. And, and he had other players playing really well for him, uh, Pedro Proro at right wing back and so on. Um, and I, I think the, the development of these players and the way that they've played for him is kind of testament you, you can see that on the pitch how hard working his teams are um for a kind of tactical sense of what they do he he sets them up in a i don't know i've seen it described as a 3-4-3 but i would describe it more as a 3-4-2-1 there's a clear distinction between the kind of attack midfielders and the center forward um but without the when they have the ball um they're 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 very interesting in terms of what the wing backs do. So extremely aggressive, maybe almost like a three-three-four, where one of the wing backs goes into the front line and the other one is kind of a, a wide midfielder. They keep a lot of width. Um, and the the kind of two attacking midfielders are very mobile, um, either running in behind or dropping deep. So it's it's a tough system to deal with, I think, for opposition teams. There's a lot going on. Um, the, the other things that are kind of interesting about his team is Again, maybe going back to the resilience, they score quite a lot of late goals. Um, so that can sometimes just be a quirk. Sometimes it's kind of, you know, um, is it really evidence of um, something intrinsic inside you? But let's say it potentially is because they have, um, I think in the last season when they won the league, they scored a goal in the 90th minute or later in nine of their 34 league matches, which is obviously a very high percentage for something like that. Um, and defensively, um, they've been really, really solid. So Sebastian Quates um, playing in the kind of middle of the back three has been um, a real warrior for them. Very, very impressive player last season. Um, and they, they only conceded 20 goals uh, in the league uh, against just 24.7 XG. That meant that they had the lowest, I believe, of the top five leagues plus Portugal, the lowest XG conceded on average per match of any team in those leagues. So re really impressive defensive record. Um, and yeah, I think that um, you can see that he can coach tactical ideas to the players and he's a, a good communicator. So stock is high, um, seeing there's links with him going to England kind of every day, Manchester United, for example, and so on. Um, I, I would kind of like it to go back to what we were talking about earlier with... Um, so um, I just would maybe want to see something a bit different for him. Maybe go to the Bundesliga, um, have a different type of football there, see how that works. That, that would be more interesting for me than him winding up at Wolves or something like that. But, you know, um, just for the Portuguese league, like not, not a dig at, at Wolves specifically, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Owen, thank you very much for talking in such detail about three, yeah, three particularly intriguing managers from around the globe yeah you you speak with that trademark attention to detail and, and I've certainly loved listening to you so I'm sure the listeners will have enjoyed listening to you as well Owen thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me guys my pleasure perfect okay well we are going to take a quick break before coming back for part three 
Now, our next guest, I think uh, we can tell a lot about our next guest from the fact that when I shared a poll on Instagram uh, the other night, last night rather, this next guest voted that uh, cars from the film Cars would have life insurance rather than car insurance. It's a poll that has uh, sparked quite ferocious debate on, on my Instagram. And yeah, our next guest said that the cars in the film Cars, Disney Pixar film, I'm pretty sure, he said that those cars would have life insurance rather than car insurance. So on that note, I'm delighted to welcome our next guest, who is the voice of scouted football himself, Joe Donoghue. You'll probably remember that Joe joined us for the first episode of season three, when we highlighted a few exciting young players. Joe, it's great to have you on. How are things? Uh, very good. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious to to know your your standpoint actually on the the whole cars life car, car insurance debate because you you know come on car insurance is quite expensive you know life insurance you can kind of parcel out the payments surely. Yeah, um, one of my good friends replied with a really quite complex explanation. It was like a not not <laughs> as much a dissertation as maybe a chapter of a dissertation about why they would have. Uh, life insurance rather than car insurance there was one one of the other but I I voted on my own poll and I voted for life insurance just because that was the vibe that I was feeling so we're, we're definitely on the same wavelength there but other than other than that other than such philosophical questions how have you been Joe are you good yeah not bad not bad at all thank you for, for having me on on on, on the, the 50th episode um it's been yeah a long time in in the works and and uh i'm, I'm really pleased to, to be chatting to you guys again because again it's one of my favorite pods um obviously you release every every other friday and a lot of the times i'm doing a lot of driving on fridays so um mm. it's, it's usually usually on in the car on, on the way to a game or something so yeah it's uh it's, it's a pleasure to be on yeah yeah well we're flattered that you Take the time to listen to Joe, a man as knowledgeable as yourself. And we've obviously both, Barlow and I have both appeared on your Scouted Football podcast. So yeah, thank you for giving us those opportunities. Now, you're quite keen to discuss some of your favourite youngsters who you either hadn't heard of 12 months ago or knew very little about. And you've picked out three players. So we're going to look at Hugo Ekitike at Lance, 19-year-old striker. We're going to look at Castro Imeri playing in Switzerland at Servette, 21-year-old midfielder. And then we're going to look at Nico, who, of course, plays for Barcelona. He's 20-year-old and he is a midfielder. So let's start with, yeah, probably the player who I probably know the most about in that list, Hugo Ekitike. Why are you so intrigued by Hugo Ekitike, Joe? Um, because he's physically quite striking, isn't he? You know, he's, yeah. he's quite a gangly, leggy centre forward, 19 years old, um, on a bit of a hot streak at the moment for, for Stadouin. Um, you know, eight goals, three assists in Liga, uh, two red cards in all competitions thrown in for good measure. Um, yeah, he's been he's been pretty box office this season. I think uh, Ryan as a club have have been have been quite quite interesting. Um, mm. we, I think we we tweeted something on the account a couple of days ago yep. uh, on the scouted account about how they're they're quite a fun upwardly mobile club which recruit well, recruit smartly, but also have um, a lot coming up through their academy. And with Ekitike, you know, he's he's someone who's had a record which was around a goal every two games for for the B team. Um, went out on loan to to Violet in in Denmark, um, scored a few goals there, but you know nothing, nothing exceptional. You know, wasn't really pulling up trees. There were a few instances where you could maybe foretell what was about to happen, but 
you know, the way that he's begun this season has been has been so so efficient. You know, his I think his XG per shot is one of the best in Europe. Mm. Um, so that kind of tells you where where he's at. And at, at 19 years old, that's quite that's quite impressive. I mean, you, you'll know as, as as well as anyone, Ali. You know, there is there is a league caveat with it being sort of yep. the, the fifth of the, the the Europe's top five leagues. But I mean, still, you know, for for a player of of his age and and relative experience to be to be putting up the numbers that he is at the moment, it's yeah, it's it's it was something which caught my eye. And as you say, 12 months ago, I hadn't heard of him. Um, it's probably a reflection of where where my knowledge has kind of gone down the drain a little bit that, that these players weren't on my radar until they started hitting calls in league game. But um, yeah, 12 months ago, Hugo Ekatike was was not a name on my radar. Yeah, I think he's as you say, an extremely exciting player. Obviously, Oscar Garcia Rance has, has done fairly well when you look at the the table ostensibly you think oh well they're, they're not too far away from the drop zone but I think the way that Ligan is shaping up this season you know a run of three or four wins in a row which just about most teams in the division are capable of um, you know you put that run together and you can absolutely climb up the table so you would imagine yeah with Hugo Ekatike in the ranks if he's not drawn away by the word of bigger clubs shall we say then absolutely he can help them to to climb up the table really exciting playing style as well and as you say Lancer an interesting case study on the whole now the next player you're wanting to focus on is a certain Castro Imeri he's a player who I have to admit I know very little about so I'm hoping that you're going to do as you always tend to do Joe and you're going to enlighten me he plays in Switzerland for Servette, he's 21 and yeah, he's a midfielder. So why should they be so excited about his progress? Um, well, the reason that I've gone with, with Emery is because, I, I, on this podcast in particular, is because I do think that Emery will end up in, in Liga um, mm. at either the end of this season or or next year um, because you know, he's 21 years old. He's He's got quite a lot of experience for his age. Um, has, has only ever played for Servette. Um, who obviously play in this, the Swiss Super League. But he's an attacking midfielder. Uh, he's got eight goals, uh, I think, in, in 14 or 15 Swiss Super League games this year. Um, but he's really taken a big leap. And uh, I went back and for, for, for the, the Swiss episode on, on the Scouted Pod, went back and had a look sort of at his previous seasons, you know, but what, what he was more, more about because the, the goal numbers just simply weren't there. Um, and I have to say, you know, his, 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 his ball striking technique, is is very good you know he scores some excellent free kicks and he has done this season um that you know if you were a, a, a social media content executive you'd be clipping them up straight away and sharing them on all the platforms that you had but um you know he's it's i think the the reason that his his, his goal volume has increased is because his shot volume has um which married up to to the stopping power that he has behind his attempts um that kind of generates the the uptick in in, in goal scoring that we've had but you know he's 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 a curious player because you can't, despite the number of games he's played, I couldn't really put my finger on what he is or what he's best at. You know, he is an attacking midfielder ostensibly, but aside from that, you know, he he you know he's a he's a bit he's a bit stocky, but also you know he's he's very mobile and can move move through the gears. Um, I think one of the best things about him is is that he's got quite a good appreciation of space. You'll see when when Servette build up quite quite slowly and quite patiently. He'll always be sort of just hanging between the lines or maybe just waiting to, to kind of dart off the midfield line and catch the defensive line of the opposition unawares. Um, and that's quite useful for him when he wants to, you know, to pop passes away at the right time, um, to, to knock it around the corner for a teammate into the penalty area. You know, if, if there's somebody making a run from, from the channels. Um, 
And I think all of this is just underpinned by the fact that I think he just thinks quicker than his opponent, which, you know, in, in the Swiss top flight is not the, the best in Europe by any stretch. Um, you know, it's obviously not one of the top five leagues, but I do think that the way that he plays and the, the intelligence that he shows, um, you know, goals aside, means that he probably could, you know, feature in a top five league. I think Liga, you know, with the, you know, the crossover, it'd probably be Liga or the Bundesliga with a crossover with him currently being in Switzerland. But mm. um, yeah, I, I do think that a player who is born also on the same day as me, not not same <laughs> age, but unfortunately he's, he's only 21. Um, the A player like that who you could only describe it as he lines his shots up and just gives it a right welly in mm. um, is just always going to be, always going to be high on my, on my radar after I've come across him. But yeah, as a, uh, as I say with, with Ekatike, Mary was also just didn't, didn't really come across him until I sort of mm. had a look at the stats. Is there any, maybe putting you on the spot a little bit here, but is there any club in particular in Liga or the Bundesliga, which you think he would, he would fit in well? I mean, immediately springing to mind is perhaps Montpellier in there. 4-2-3-1, all that Savani is very much the kind of the the, the flavour of the month at, at Montpellier in that number 10 role. But is there any club in particular that, that you could maybe see him featuring that? Um, it's an interesting one because I, f- I felt that maybe if he was going to come to the Premier League, which I don't think he will, um, you know, a, a system which allows quite a lot of fluidity. So for, for somebody like a, a Leeds, for example, would, mm. would benefit from having him as sort of a, a, a hybrid eight or a hybrid 10, you mm. know, somebody who can effectively play both positions you know contribute contribute in the final third by arriving late link play out wide um you know be up to a physical challenge i i, I honestly would not know to 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 say whether there's a, there is a team mm. in in league and like that i think monaco under nico kovac probably would have been a good uh, yeah. a good fit um but obviously that's that's now not going to be the case uh, with with philippe clement coming in so um yeah, a, a team who would have played similarly to, to how Monaco did under under Kovac. And uh, I'm just interested to know on Imeri, I'm going to do something that I really hate doing here and put him in a box. So if you had to sort of give me a sort of type of midfielder, if you had to give me sort of his, his best attribute, would that be kind of the goal scoring and the shooting from, from distance getting on the end? Or is this sort of an attacking midfielder who... Is trying to play the penultimate pass, or or is he sort of assisting? What kind of style is he as an attacking midfielder? Uh, he's he's better at sort of finish, you know, uh, contributing the final action than he is to sort of the the penultimate action, if you will. Mm. So you know, he's he's more. I mean, he he is a creative player. Um, you know, he can link those those moves in the final third. But I think if I was if I was describing one standout attribute that really makes him, you know, stand out from the rest, it would be that the ball striking because a lot of the time even when he's arriving late both feet you know doesn't have a lot of time to think it's it, it's struck really well and you know the lower down the levels that you go you often see that shots are they maybe aren't as struck cleanly as you'd like or you'd see in in mm. the top five leagues or whatever but he he is you know he, he catches out a lot of teams because just simply he, he does finish his chances so so efficiently and I think that's because he, that's always been there but it's just the fact that now he's attempting it more, he's getting into positions more where he will take it on. Fascinating. And moving on to, to Nico Gonzalez, who's obviously a player that I'm fairly aware of at Barcelona. You obviously hear kind of snippets come through if you're sort of around your own club and you hear bits and bits and bobs and you get more and more information and you finally see this young player sort of debut in the first team <laughs> and you get to 
make up your own mind, but you also get sort of a, a sort of prefabricated image of what they are. And I think at Barcelona, the main excitement of Nico is that there's always this debate between physicality and, and sort of technical ability and which one's better and do you need sort of athletes. Nico's fun and exciting because he is pretty big. Um, he's a large, large guy. Um, and he can he can shift a bit, but he's also got that technical ability. But I'm, what I'm intrigued to know is just kind of how he struck you from sort of outside that sort of endorno, that sort of uh, media environment. Well, I mean, to be fair, the thing that I was going to say first was that I first came across Nico um, sort of at the beginning of this season. Um, because obviously he was one of the names that was popping up in in the starting 11s and somebody who was of an age which was you know it's within the scouted remit um so that that naturally piqued my attention but I, I kind of didn't didn't follow and didn't watch any of Barcelona's games at that point and then sort of started to look at his, his statistics on FB, FB ref um sort of midway through the season probably around October time and to me I was looking at it I was thinking with with the ball carrying that he has and with the, the number of fouls that he draws, I was looking at him and I was thinking, right, well, we've got a, a sort of a, a Bernardo Silva type player here. And, and I imagine he'd probably be of a similar stature. And then you actually go and watch Barcelona's games and you're going, where's Nico? I can't see him. He's, he's clearly not that guy because he's six foot two. And then you're kind of looking around, you're going cross-referencing, okay, I'm checking the squad squad numbers and I'm checking that I'm going... He is that is that is him. That's number. He's twenty eight, isn't he? The the number that he wears, or is it twenty? Yep, yep. Yeah, I'm like, okay, yeah. So that is Nico, and to 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 sort of to the naked eye, you would not have thought that he was that type of player. But he's just, you know, he I don't know, kind of defies description in a in a way that that his statistics would would perhaps um, outline. Um, I think being outside of that circle, I can, I don't know, I feel maybe sort of look at it a little bit more objectively um you know i think first and foremost you know as you'll know rory uh you know a simple secure passer you know first and foremost doesn't overcomplicate things but when he does pick his moments they do seem to be quite well formed you know the decision making um you know nothing too flashy but releases the ball when it needs releasing um and is able to carry it through lines is able to to disrupt opposition structures um is able to pass under pressure and all of this for me coming up from obviously Barca B um to you know pretty seamlessly transitioning into the first team from as far as I've seen which is to be fair only a couple of games at this point but it's yeah that I mean it's really encouraging And, and as with the other two I, you know, 12 months ago, I was not savvy on Barca B and, and you know, the, the Akumash and uh, the other players who've, who've obviously come through this year, Nico being one of them. So to see how well it's, it's sort of, it's sort of worked out um, for him individually um, is, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a real encouraging one. And for him to be only 20 years old is, again, within that scouted remit. And I'm really interested as well, because you mentioned sort of two of his uh, good attributes there. You mentioned sort of his ball carrying, also the fact that he's a safe and secure passer. And before, uh, certainly in Barca B, again, that sort of um, pre-made image we had of him was the Busquets replacement. And I think more than anything, it's probably a product of the fact that he is also large and Busquets <laughs> is tall um, and Gavi is small, so he must be shabby. So it, <laughs> it's, it's all of these kind of like circles that we end up in. Um, but just from your point of view, obviously, yeah, you mentioned this ball carrying. Do you see him kind of playing further forward 
or do you think he will take a step back in terms of position on the field? I, I think he could play further forward. I, I kind of see him as uh, maybe not with the same off-the-ball tenacity, but certainly his on-ball attributes. I see him as a similar player to sort of Nicolo Barella um, because, you know, he does have that, yeah, I mean, look at any of his numbers, you know, the creatively he's, he's, he's you know, he's, he's doing very well from what is ostensibly a deeper starting position. I think if he, if he can demonstrate that he has the mobility to play as a, as a number eight consistently, um, then yeah, I think he definitely could play further forward. I mean, I, I also think that with the, the way that he beats pressure, he could actually, he could play as a, a very mobile six, um, it's it's a good question to be fair i mean what's your what's your stance on it because i mean you you watch barcelona every week so i mean you've probably got a better standpoint from it i personally prefer him a bit further forward and i think it's almost a consequence of the fact that we're so used to having smaller um mm. and sort of very controlling midfielders whereas nico um if you do get him crashing the box it's it's quite a force coming into the box and so it's pretty <laughs> handy to have him as opposed to a Gabi or a Chabi or an Iniesta, that kind of player. And I think with Busquets, I, I think they we're, we're looking too much for a sort of direct replacement for Busquets. And I think the things that he does will end up being done by two to three players because he's such a very idiosyncratic player in the sense that the way he handles the ball and the way he brings the ball out, mm-hmm. I don't think any other player is going to do that. And I also... I, I don't think there's anybody who has quite the same weaknesses as him in, in the same sense. I, know, I think I'd agree with you there. I mean, you know, you can see in, in his game when Nico kind of just drifts out to, to sort of the, the wide areas a little bit, kind of becomes that that half winger type midfielder. And you think, well, not every number six can do that. So why would you maybe try and box somebody into a more defensive role when they when they are offering something so so effective in, in, in the attacking phases? And as well, you know, the fact that he rides challenges quite well you know you're talking about him careering through the final third um being quite a force you know it is going to be difficult to get the ball off him when he when he gets going and i think what maybe it's just maybe it's unconscious bias of mine but it seems as though he never really gets out of third gear but third gear is enough if he's going through if he's you know if, if he's going through challenges so yeah who knows i think there's a lot of growth potential there i think there's a lot of upside um and I think now having had this chat, I think boxing him into a to a sixth position probably isn't the best thing to do because he won't fulfill the same role as, as Busquets, as, as you say. And then that obviously risks tarnishing his how, how he's viewed or how he's perceived because he's maybe not playing the, the best role. Absolutely. Well, there we have it. Three names, Hugo Ekitike, Castro Imeri and Nico, remember those names. Joe, it's been great to have you on. And just before you do go, we do have to compliment that gorgeous Real Betis cap that you're wearing. And you were saying just before we came on air about how your visit to Seville coincided with, well, almost exactly with this sort of upturn in form and this wonderful season that the two big sides in, in Seville are enjoying. So are you, this is the big question that we really wanted to ask you, are you directly responsible for that do you have the footballing Midas touch Joe Donahue it, it is potentially the case because I did visit both uh the Ramon Sanchez piece one and, and the Benito Via Marine because I thought you know I can't go to one and and not go to the other um so I think maybe maybe if I'd been to one and not the other and maybe Betis I'd gone to and, and they'd been you know great in the league and Sevilla maybe dropped off a bit then we would have a better test case but yeah, maybe, maybe that's maybe I've got the Midas touch. Maybe I need to come up to Ayrshire to, to sort Killy out. 
Yeah, I think that's probably beyond even your uh, healing powers, <laughs> Joe. Um, but what, what we could do is we could arrange a joint trip out to Strasbourg to ensure that the, the wonderful form <laughs> of Strasbourg under Joey and Stefan continues. They, of course, won again 3-1 at the weekend against Montpellier and Elia Wahi, who we mentioned, Joe, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the podcast, was actually sent off that game, which served as a catalyst for Strasbourg's remarkable last 15-minute turnaround. But anyway, Joe, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you again for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure to chat, as, as always. Perfect. Okay, dokie, but we are going to take a quick break before coming back for the fourth and final part of this special episode. We'll be right back. Our final guest is Jonathan Fadugba, who you might not be aware of if you've been living under a rock for the last three years. I don't think anyone could even accuse us of being obsequious by calling him one of the brightest minds in football media, a consultant, a scout, an analyst. His work has earned him a place on Guardian's Football Weekly, just one of many projects he is involved in. They include the Nordic Football Podcast, Just Football, Future Global Sports, in Sports Management Consultancy all of which he has founded and led. Welcome, Jonathan, but on to the more important stuff. How are you? Yeah, good, guys. Thank you so much for that intro. I feel uh, I feel like a bit flattered <laughs> by that intro. Yeah, you've, you've, you've definitely talked me off. I, I appreciate it. And uh, I'm pleased yeah. to be on the show. Thanks a lot. And congrats on uh, on your landmark episode. It's a pleasure to be a part of it. Yeah, now you've uh, you've definitely got to live up to uh, to all that praise. <laughs> no, um, pressure. Pressure. <laughs> pressure is on, but that is where the stars perform best, or so they tell me. Um, so just uh, we'll, we'll jump straight into it. I kind of well, we kind of wanted to give you a lot of room for maneuver um, in your first appearance on the pod, and really kind of let your creativity take you into the space that you want to go. So we thought it'd be a good idea. Um, for if you were happy to, to talk about clubs that are in some way exceptional, that reject the norm. And of course, few clubs do so quite like Athletic Club in Bilbao in Spain. I reckon most of our listeners will be kind of aware of their Basque-only signing policy, but I wanted to know your thoughts on how this survives in modern football, not only on the pitch, but also as a brand off it. Yeah, it's a dangerous, um, dangerous game giving me free reign to sort of talk about whatever I want. So I hope I, hope I didn't go too much off on tangents. But um, yeah, you asked me to select sort of two or you know three interesting clubs to you know dissect uh, in European football, and I have I had to start like immediately. The first one in my mind was Athletic Bilbao. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned obviously the Basque policy, and 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 you know um, I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with it. Basically, there's been an unwritten rule since the club was founded over 100, you know, 110 years ago, um, whereby they only sign players who were born in the Basque country or who have learned their skills at a Basque club. Now, yeah, I think the reason I wanted, the reason I selected this, and I think it is an interesting debate in terms of like the modern life. How does that kind of translate, and how is that perceived? Um, I mean, for me, I've been to Bilbao. Uh, I went to the last ever. So basically, uh, at just football, when it was like thriving, when the site was really like bouncing, um, I went over to uh, San Mamed for the last ever um, home game uh, at Bilbao's old stadium. Um, they've now they're in a now a new stadium called New San Mamed. And um, basically, me and a friend of mine, we 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 jumped on a plane pre-COVID times, um, got ourselves to the best country, and just walked around trying to find a, a ticket, basically, and and had no like had no ticket. We were just like, let's go to the last ever game. Um, and so I'm going to be very defensive of the kind of Basque only recruitment policy. I think, even though like intuitively 
you know, as a sort of like a black Englishman, basically, uh, it's probably counterintuitive to how I should interpret it, if that makes sense. But I'm going to give reasons why. So like when, like when I was there, the first thing to say is, and obviously this is just anecdotal, so you don't know how it translates, but for me, it was like the, one of the best experiences I've ever had in football in terms of like uh, going to a football match. Um, it's a one city club. Obviously, you've got Real Sociedad and their rivals, but they're about 100 kilometers. San Sebastian's about 100 kilometers away. So this is like a palpably, you know, Bilbao city. You walk around and it's like, you just feel that Basque kind of culture and heritage. Um, and the people were like unbelievably friendly. I was a bit worried about how you'd be perceived, if you know what I mean. But basically, long story short, like we met some people who helped us find a ticket for this game and eventually managed to get two tickets. Um, so it was a really kind of spontaneous, like a great feeling. But um, yeah, I have to say, like the way it was received and just walking around the city, like I've, ne- I've, never, I've never been to a game where you felt more like the club is representative of like the community. You know, you're walking down the streets, everybody like knows each other, people were like, we, so we met some people, they were introducing us to all their friends. Like it was really, really like one of the most memorable experiences I've ever had. So yeah, I guess you guys will debate and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it in terms of the Basque only policy. And, and, and I think one of the amazing facts is they're one of the elite group of three Spanish teams to have never been relegated. So for me, that's just incredible. I mean, imagine having a team called, I don't know, Glasgow FC or, or, or London FC or something like that, and they're only allowed to recruit players from the London area. The, the chances of them not being relegated from like, you know, SPL, let's say, or the Premier League is, is so slim um, that for me, it's like an unbelievable achievement. And one thing I just say, obviously, I know they, they kind of, sometimes they face accusations maybe of like, is it a xenophobic thing or is it kind of like a bit exclusionary? I do get that, but you do have to bear in mind as well. Like there's obviously got players like Nyaki Williams who has Basque heritage, even though he's sort of, um, you know, kind of come from a, uh, an immigrant background, if that makes sense. So it's not necessarily kind of like you can't play if you're not blood of, 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 of blood of the Basque, if you know what I mean. But um, yeah, long story short, it's, it's definitely a, a club that's up for debate. Yeah, I think it's interesting because that that accusation of whether it is kind of a xenophobic thing does get thrown about every now and then. Personally, I think it's a really shallow way of reading it because you talked about your experience there and and wow, what an experience getting go getting to go to San Mamés for the last game at the old stadium. I'm, I'm very jealous of that. But the way in which the Basque country, as as a sort of wider wider place, but also Bilbao is like such a welcoming place and the way that people really take you in in the Basque country certainly that's been my experience of it it's it's a beautiful place and the people are very very sort of endearing they they welcome you they want you to be part of it they want you to sort of get involved and so I think if you take in mind that character and also the way again you kind of mentioned Nyaki Williams he, the way that they've sort of promoted that story, the way that they've really sort of pushed that um, his story and his family's story as part of being sort of Basque and as part of like a, sort of the immigrant community coming into the Basque country and making it their home. I think that really sort of takes the difference um, or, or takes away that sort of xenophobic accusation for me. Moving on in terms, I mean, I, I'm interested in Spanish football and, and I've been to Bilbao and yeah, it's something that fascinates me. But on a sort of more global stage, I mean, I'm probably, yeah, I'm going to buy into them because they're unique. But does this sort of, I think you probably have like a more stood back sort of opinion. Does this sort of appeal to sort of people in the rest of the world? How would you say that they're seen on a wider level? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think they're, 
I suppose in the, in a modern game, if you look at kind of you know maybe if you look at younger age groups, let, let's face it, ultimately a lot of how people discover football now, like how, how you discover football clubs now has fundamentally changed, right? So when we were kids, maybe it'll be in the magazine or when you're younger, you know, maybe like the internet's changed how you identify football teams. Things like FIFA now are basically driving fan adoption, if that makes sense. You become, you know, you can have a fan in the Philippines or America supporting Real Madrid just because they've played as Real Madrid on FIFA, if that makes sense, because they beat their friends because they're the best team. So, you're not going to, you know, if you're, play, if you're a young fan now kind of trying to get into the game, you're not going to maybe play as Bilbao on FIFA, if you know what I mean. It's a battle now for every football club, how they actually attract fans and, and sort of sell their story. And I think, you know, a bit of a tangent on that, but if you look at how they do it now, it's really kind of like through things like Netflix as well. You know what I mean? Like series are now actually attractors and drivers of fandom. So, you know, Sunderland are now, because of the Netflix documentary, probably quite well known around the world when they might not ordinarily have been. So... I suppose if I was like working on the Bilbao tourist board or something, I would be maybe suggesting a Netflix documentary because you could sell the story really well. Um, in terms of how it's received, yeah, they, I mean, clearly they're, they're always going to be a niche club. And obviously, if you look at it historically, the, the, the sort of battle for Basque independence as well is a, is a major thing in Spain. and Spanish football, of course, you've got that backdrop. Uh, similar to Barcelona in a way in terms of the Catalan, you know, um, independence movement. But it's more with, 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 um, with Bilbao, obviously, the Basque movement's had a bit more of a troubled history, especially in recent history, if you know what I mean. So it's a it's a difficult one in terms of, you know, they're loved in part, they're loved in their own part of Spain, but then there are teams that kind of hate them and what they represent, if you know what I mean. So when they play Real Madrid, for example, it's a kind of, you know, it's, it's a kind of like the royal club against the kind of the Basque independent nation. Um, but like I said, you know, for, for me on an anecdotal level, when, when we arrived, like the way we were, we were received, like I said, I, you know, we, we were quite clear we're an English group. Um, you know, luckily I speak Spanish, but still kind of trying to engage with people and say, like, where can we get a ticket? And the amount of people that went out of their way. Um, there's a famous Bass drink guys, by the way, which I recommend if you ever go there called Kelly Moch School, which is a, a mixture of Coke and red wine, which uh, we were absolutely peppered with throughout the day. So, uh, you know, I have to admit I was a bit worse for <laughs> by the end of it. But, uh, but like, you know, the, just like the, the culture and the kind of history of the place, like you just feel really there's a, there's a cathedral near the stadium, the, the club. You know, San Mamas, old San Mamas was called La Catedral. And just that feeling is really like, what, if you experience it, you would definitely embrace it and come away, I think, feeling positive um, from, from what I experienced. Obviously, where, you know, they're always going to be a small club in terms of how many, you know, even the exclusivity of playing for them is, you know, uh, I think the, the first ever black player was a player called Jonas Romayo, I believe. And he, he, he had an Angolan father and a, and a, and a Basque mother uh, from Biscaya. And I remember on the team sheet, there was like a list, every single player on the team sheet, it put like next to it, their birthplace. So it was like Nafaroa or Biscaya or Araba or Kipuskoa. And that's like the lit. So it would be like, imagine, imagine sort of you'd have a team in London and it would just be like, you know, uh, I don't know, let's say like Jaden Sancho, Lewisham or, you know, kind of like literally listing every single player's birthplace, like Tatswood and, you know, on the team sheet, which was incredible. So... Yeah, it's, I think it's one of those ones where if you knew about it, you you would you would identify with it. I think in the modern age, it would probably be you know they've even got their own um, language like and their own uh, writing. The, the the match programs written in Euskara, which is their Basque language. So I think it would be received in a kind of there's some that would you know in our polarized world it probably be some people would criticize it and and some wouldn't. But I do think it's actually quite endearing and quite warm and and I don't think it's like you know. I, it, it doesn't feel exclusive if that makes sense and that's the key really it's kind of how 
they have their best pride, but it's not necessarily like oh, you, no one can be involved. You know, one of the big, uh, one of the best ever play, um, sorry, one of their most revered ever figures at the club is an Englishman, um, Pentland, who was the manager for a long time. Um, Frederick Pentland, who's like a, he's like one of the most successful managers in the club's history. So, I suppose what I'm trying to say is you can be embraced if you're from outside the the region, but it's just obviously the the the, the team selection is always going to be based on that Basque heritage. So, it's a it's a club that always makes you think, and obviously anyone. Of you guys if you play football manager it's always the, the toughest challenge on the game if you're trying to win things on that so um it's a unique club and you know you asked me to name some clubs that are a bit different it's probably one of the most unique clubs in, in world football absolutely jonathan a special club and as you say a unique club now elsewhere you were quite keen to cover the rivalry between leon and saint etienne both sides have struggled to varying extents domestically this season Leon sit in 11th place at the time of recording, while Saint-Étienne are rooted to the bottom of the table, six points adrift of safety. Despite their current travails, both clubs can boast really quite rich histories. Between them, they've been crowned champions of France's top flight on 17 occasions. The two Derby de Gaulle fixtures are still also two of the most anticipated dates in the league and calendar. So I was really quite delighted when you said you were keen to put the two clubs, their youth academies and their rich histories under the figurative microscope. What is it that so intrigues you about Lyon and Saint-Étienne, Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I love about your show, guys, uh, is obviously you cover all the different European leagues. And I'm always particularly keen to listen to the French part, so obviously... The Monaco section, uh, you know, I like whenever you talk about French football, you, you basically might ASP cut because it's um, a long story short. I used to work in, in French football as a football analyst. And so uh, for a company called Football Radar, and, and you had to basically have in-depth knowledge of every single team pretty much. And uh, Saint-Étienne, I, I'd always had a soft spot for it anyway, because I've always enjoyed, I've always loved French football be- even before that role. Um, but Saint-Étienne, like learning their history and learning more about them, have always been a club that's kind of basically attracted me. It's a team that I, I, I really want to go and see one day. Um, partly because of that, just the intense fan base. They got one of the best supported. They're one of the best supported clubs in the league. One of the most successful teams in in, in French football history. And that you know, they, well, in fact, they are in terms of in terms of titles, league titles. One, they've got the most uh, title wins, ten. And I think the reason that it's interesting to me is because obviously in the, in this age of PSG dominating everything and, and actually they're catching them up by the way they might overtake them in the next few years in terms of most successful uh, titles won but um, Saint-Étienne Lyon's always been like the the, the key rivalry in, in French football really you know PSG Marseille is a, is, a, is a big one as well but you can't overlook Saint-Étienne Lyon for me it's one of the best derbies it's, it's a game even still now I still mark on my calendar to try and watch if I can uh, the, the hatred between the two teams is, is, is fierce and it's unique I guess in a way because you know, they both had periods of huge dominance in French football. And I suppose it relates to today because you kind of, you know, if we were looking at French football now, you're kind of looking at it as like how long, you know, how many titles are PSG going to win in the next 10 years? You know, are they going to win sort of 10, 10, 10 straight or anything like that? You know, how, how long is this going to go on for? I know they're not the current champions, but, you know, in terms of the last sort of 10 years. And, and Lyon and saint have both had that, that period. So for, for Saint-Étienne, it was in the 60s and the 70s. You know, they dominated the, the, the league. Uh, that's when they racked up most of their titles, basically, between 1963 and 1981. They, they won nine league titles. And, and Lyon as well had, and this is when I was sort of getting into French football in the kind of early 2000s, 
Um, Leon had a team that went, you know, and won the league, I think, seven years consecutively, if I'm right, saying two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. Uh, and the other part of it, Alistair, that makes such a dynamic rivalry for me is that it's, it's, the, it's the breeding ground of talent in, in French football, this part of, the, part of France. You've got Paris, and then you've got, in my opinion, this is one of the best sort of um, talent, talent pools in, this region of France is one of the best talent pools in, 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 in the country. Um, you know, the team of, if we talk about the team of Lyon, that, that 2000 to 2008 team, you can name players like, obviously, Michael Essien came through, Juninho, uh, Karen Benzema, like, it's a place where they always produce, like, incredible talents. Um, the current team, obviously, we've got Maxence Kakare, who's a player I think is, is, is going to go on. Um, and Ryan Cherky is one that a lot of people are talking about. So it's always, no matter what's going on, you've still got good players that you can watch, if you know what I mean. Santé Tien, I think one of the bigger players that's moved on was obviously Kurt, Kurt Zuma. Um, moved on to Chelsea at the time. He came through their academy. And even now, they've got players like Adil Ashish, who's a, a young talent there, who's had a, been in and out of the team under Puel, but is still a, you know, a player that, um, he's just recently been in the team a little bit more and is starting to find his feet. So, yeah, it's one of those games where it's one of those games where the hatred, like just the passion in the stands, the histories of the two teams, the fact that you can always spot some gems on the pitch, it, it all combines to just make it like it's right on my street in terms of like a footballing pure rivalry. Yeah, absolutely, Jonathan. And it's perhaps one of the most organic rivalries in Europe. I know that plenty of rivalries could probably lay claim to that title if you like but certainly yeah it seems a really organic rivalry and I think the fact that the two teams have had their prolonged spells in the sun really kind of does add to the whole aspect of it being one of yeah one of those more organic rivalries the Saint-Étienne fans quite often will look at, at Lyon as the sort of team that came along later on and yeah they maybe had a good a good period and, and time but they, they can't quite boast that same history stretching further back and I think yeah as, as you say it's always a fiery encounter there are always some some excellent players out on display the two youth academies produce some absolute gems as well as you say and yeah even if Saint-Étienne do go down this season you would like to think that their youth academy which has produced the likes of Saïd so who we've highlighted on the podcast uh, he's he's been a sort of a shining light in an otherwise really quite cloudy season for Saint-Étienne this season so yeah it's it's a wonderful rivalry Jonathan, thank you so much for giving up your time both to research and to come on the podcast. It's been fantastic speaking to you. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate the invite. And uh, yeah, I just want to say, like, if you ever get the chance, like, it's the one derby I've never been to in terms of like mm. major clubs. Like, it's the one, it's the, it's the one, like, it's one of the few, like, bucket list games that I'd need to go to in terms of, I've never been to see um, Sanity and play. But if you ever get a chance, if you're listening to this and you ever get a chance to go to a, a Rowan derby, like, do it because as long as you stay away from the missiles and stuff, like the TIFOs and the, <laughs> the, the, the celebrations that go on are like, it's unlike anything else. So yeah, um, thanks a lot for inviting me to the show, guys. Congratulations on the 50th. And uh, yeah, just a word of advice, like I said, if you can ever get to uh, um, this derby, then try and do so, because it's, uh, it's definitely one I, I want to tick off one day. Wise words indeed, Jonathan, wise words. <laughs> so that brings to an end our 50th episode Thank you so much to all of our guests, to Alan, to Owen, to Joe and to Jonathan. Thank you as well to you, the listener, for your support throughout, whether you've been with us from the very start or whether you've joined along the way. We'll be back in two weeks' time in the usual place. Until then, stay safe and stay well. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>